Cellular signaling is so complicated because there are so many different chemokines and cytokines and metabokines, and they are all molecules that actually pre present these signals to the cells. So the cells know what to do, so the cells know how to protect themselves, so the cells know how to protect their neighbors. And so that's, why, that's how important cellular signaling is. And we know for a fact, and that's what the cell danger response research is about, which is that it's showing that when we are under stress, whether we perceive it or not, those cells are releasing all of those different compounds. Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, medicine, to nature, culture, and politics. There is no topic too big or too small. Today's show is actually the first half of an edited version of the class that we ran in our clinic in December of 2019, all about the cell danger response. Robert Navio and many others have put together some fascinating work about why we get sick, how we stay sick, and how we get well. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find out more about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks, Julian Ehrlich. I'm a family nurse practitioner. So this is Dr. Eileen Ruhoy. She's the neurologist here. Hi, I'm Deirdre. I'm a physician assistant. I'm the assistant medical director. I'm really excited about this month's topic, the cell danger response. It was actually initiated in the 90s before Navio, but he's really picked it up and ran with it. And he's a researcher and an MD at the University of California in San Diego. And he has a mitochondria and metabolism um, research lab down there. And they're doing a ton of work on the cell danger response. And the reason that we're doing this class today on the cell danger response is because in medicine, in modern medicine, we don't talk at all about how we heal. And this is what the cell danger response really gives us insight about. So we talk about symptoms and we talk about the physiology and the metabolism of like stopping symptoms. Like if you have a traumatic brain injury, what are the symptoms of that? And then how do you stop those symptoms? But the cell danger response really elegantly unrolls the physiology of how we heal. And there's a few remarkable things about this. Really, the, comp the main component is that it is a cycle that happens, so whenever we perceive a threat, and I'm gonna kind of dive right into this, whenever we perceive a threat, our system gets set off for an entire metabolic cascade of changes that happens within our cells. And they happen kind of step by step by step. And there's a way that we're supposed to experience a threat and then have that threat go away and then have our cells clean up and then kind of come back to normal. So in my mind, for whatever reason, I think of it as a clock, right? There's a time for the perce perception of the threat a time for managing that, a time for resolving that, and then a time for rejuvenation and restoration. And in Western and medicine, stronger, right? Yeah, and stronger. So not just a healing, but a strengthening is how it's meant to process. That's right. Work. Yeah. That's right. We never actually come back to being the same person. No. We come back to being different, and the hope is, is that we're more capable, that we've learned from this experience, and that we've built some um, adjustments in our physiology so that we can attend to that as we, as we age. Um, and so what ends up happening, however, is in Western medicine, and Robert Navio has, uh, freely acknowledges this, there's actually, no, there's actually no respect given to this whole cycle. There's no conversation about restoration or rejuvenation. There's no conversation about how do you clean up the cell danger cycle. Once we're put into a period of alarm, how do we actually finish it? 
and Western medicine actually doesn't have a lot of options. Um, and so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Another thing I know I want to point out that I think is really mm -hmm. special about the cell danger response is that it offers a paradigm for understanding different diseases um, that we haven't understood. Autism, for instance, right? It gives us this insight mm -hmm. into why that happens and what goes wrong. And it also explains in the context of the toxins that we're constantly exposed to in this day and age, why we're seeing more and more of that kind of um, unexplainable process, you know, in development. So I think that's a really exciting part about the building. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things um, that Navio makes is when he talks about, do you all know what a Venn diagram is? A Venn diagram is when you have one thing, you have an overlapping thing, and the Venn part is like, where do they overlap? And the Venn diagram that he really makes for chronic disease actually looks kind of like a sunflower. So in a sunflower, you have all these petals that come out from one unified center. And that unified center really is the cell danger response. That unified center for most chronic disease actually is this component of threat and then the lack of restoration from that threat. So we think about, currently we think about disease in silos. So we think about chronic fatigue and, or myalgic, myalgic encephalopathies and why not it, good work. <laughs> I always cut it short, an ME. So we think of that in one silo. And we think about um, mast cell activation syndrome in another, in another silo. And we think about traumatic brain injury in another silo. And we think about anxiety or depression and we think about constipation and we think about IBS and we think about all these in silos and we go about them researching them and understanding them as if they're silos, as if we break down all of those physiological components, then we'll be able to understand that disease. But really at the root, just like in the center of a sunflower, it's actually most likely the cell danger response. And the reason that I'm so hot on this topic right now <laughs> is because it really is very Ayurvedic. Now Ayurveda is the traditional medical system of India. It was initiated five to 10,000 years ago and there's eight branches in Ayurveda, and one entire branch is basically, is called Rasayana, and it translates as restoration and rejuvenation. And so this is one-eighth of their medical system. They've got it strong enough to give it an entire, its own branch. Um, and it has, it can hold a lot of the secrets for how we're gonna actually be able to clean up this cell danger response. So tonight we're gonna talk about what happens in this healing cycle. And then we're going to talk about what we can do about it and some of the tricks of the trade um, for thinking about it. So the first thing to know about the cell danger response is how much uh, cellular signaling, how much cell talk there is going in, around in our body at every second of every day. That our cellular talk is like a stadium of voices inside of us, inside of every cell. And that's the piece that we first have to think about. We think of who we are as our brains and kind of what we externally perceive, what we can hear, what we can see what we feel, what we touch, what we taste, but really our cells are doing incredibly deep, continuous sampling of the environment um, for signals as well as responding. So it is a constant listening and responding, listening and responding. So even if our senses aren't necessarily doing that, our physical bodies are. And the reason I think about this is I had a patient today who said, I don't feel anxious. And what we talked about is her body is perceiving an anxiety that her mind may not be perceiving. And that's really relevant, especially in something like chronic fatigue syndrome, where the person has the oomph, they have the interest to get up and go, but the body just says, nope, not happening. 
So we have to remember that that cacophony of signals back, you know, it's these cells that are constantly going, I'm cool, you cool, I'm cool, you cool. And based on changes in the environment, and this can be changes in the pH, in the temperature, atmospheric pressure, um, levels of light or darkness, um, things that we smell, perceptions of, of any of our senses, or anything that we think. So any of our metabolic, a metabolic memory may be a, an emotional memory from childhood or from early years. It may also be a physical memory that we don't even catalog, but our cells remember. And that might be something like chickenpox, mm -hmm. right? So chickenpox is a metabolic memory that we maintain, hopefully throughout the lifespan, that we don't consciously avoid chickenpox. We don't consciously be afraid of chickenpox. We're not doing anything to not get chickenpox again or to think about chickenpox in our daily life, but our body holds that memory. So that is really the first thing to think about. And there's a guy in, I just learned he's not in Germany. Oh, or uh, the cells talk about oh. He actually lives in the Philippines. So anyway, he has a website called Cells Talk, and it may actually even be cells-talk.com. And he is cataloging how many cells have talked with each other and I think he just did another big upload, and he's up to something like 60,000 entries. So the number of cells that we have sampling our environment, our internal environment, listening and responding, maybe kind of like 60,000 different types, and then you think about how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of millions of those cells they are, you can imagine that it's kind of exhausting in here, even when we're sleeping, even when we're doing nothing, like meditating, right? So that's the first part to really recognize, is that what we are perceiving is way beyond what we think we are perceiving. Can you think of a time when you felt like you were stressed and then felt the release of the stress, or vice versa, when you felt that something wasn't stressful but ultimately did not feel well the very next day? Or the relief when something was over and you didn't even recognize? I think a lot of us live in sort of this state of just cortisol, right? The state of that sort of adrenaline rush where we feel like we're doing okay, we're working okay. But then when that stress, that stress or stressful stimuli or stressful factor is, is removed, we have this letdown effect, which is why we know that lots of things happen when we're on vacation or on weekends. Strokes happen actually most commonly on, on vacation or on weekends or on a Monday morning after a weekend when people have to get up and they think about having to go to work after sort of being in this letdown state for the weekend. So there are different changes that happen in our body even when we're not under stress that actually predisposes us to having a potential neurologic event or other kind of uh, metabolic event. And so it's really, it's, and it, it, it speaks to what Jillian was saying, which is that the cells are constantly on guard, right? They're constantly perceiving and understanding what's going on around us and how we're feeling and how the, the outside is affecting us. And so that it sets up this, this cascade of events within the cell. And really, the cell danger response is really all about cellular signaling. And that's actually how our bodies evolve. Our bodies develop, in utero, actually, it's all about cells listening to signals of other cells to decide what kind of cells should they become. I was talking about in the brain, actually, that the brain sort of starts as this core group of cells that migrate to become different parts of the brain regions. And for example, we have the cortex, right, which is the outside of the brain. And so these cells from the, from the core, they hear a signal, and some of the cells think, oh, that signal tells me that I should become a cortical cell, and they start to migrate off to the edges of our brain. Sometimes that signal is cut off, and that's usually from trauma, from infection, from other stressful events from the in utero environment that happens to the mom. And so that cell gets that wayward signal and says, oh, I better stop, and stops right there in the white matter. So we end up having these cortical cells that are sitting in the white matter, and we call that heterotropia, and that's not a good thing. 
And that's actually a cause for a lot of people's for seizure disorders is the most common thing you see with it, but it also causes a delay for cognitive concerns. But that's a, I was talking about these migrational abnormalities as a, as a prime example of how important cellular signaling is. Right? And cellular signaling is so complicated because there are so many different chemokines and cytokines and metabokines, and they are all molecules that actually pre present these signals to the cells. So the cells know what to do, so the cells know how to protect themselves, so the cells know how to protect their neighbors. And so that's, why, that's how important cellular signaling is. And we know for a fact, and that's what the cell danger response research is about, which is that it's showing that when we are under stress, whether we perceive it or not, those cells are releasing all of those different compounds and releasing all those different compounds, in fact, to an excessive extent. So cell danger response is a graded response, right? So there's phase one, phase two, and phase three, and then I was referred to falling off a cliff. Right, so, and in, within those stages, you still have some normal amount of compounds being released and so normal signaling, signals being heard, and a normal response to those signals as well. But as we move along those phases, that response becomes a little bit more chaotic and a little bit more aberrant, and so it's no longer effective. And in fact, we know that and there's a whole area of research about the purinergic signaling, right? So we know there's an increased release of purinergics, which are like adenosine and certain nucleotides, and so there's too much of it. And in fact, a lot of the studies are showing that if you block, so there are a lot of purinergic receptors, a lot. There are tons in the brain. They're responsible for Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease and ALS, co cognitive declines, all kinds of different neurologic disorders, as well as other metabolic disorders. It's been seen in like pulmonary diseases and in kidney diseases and in diabetes. And so there are all these different receptors. And so some of the, of the work that's being done is trying to find a ways of blocking the receptors, or at least blocking those purines from attaching to those receptors and thereby stopping that over excessive signaling. It's like someone ringing a bell to your house over and over, <laughs> and over again. Right? At first you're like, oh, that's my doorbell. Somebody's at my door. Cool. Somebody came to visit. But eventually, you know, they keep ringing and you're like, who the hell is this person? Go away. Right? And then you have a, a visceral response where you don't want to even open the door because you don't want to know who's on the other side. So it's a similar kind of thing. And, you know, first it's actually a normal response, but eventually it becomes excessive. And then it can cause disease. What the goal really is, is to stop the signaling, this excessive signaling. And that's actually how we try to reverse the, basically the cell danger response to get it back into a more healthy phase. And it's super important because one of the ways to do that, because there really isn't a clear, easy way. One of the ways, of course, is to sort of recognize what's causing the finger on the doorbell. Right? What's causing that doorbell to ring over and over and over again. And that's different for every single person in this room. It's just the way it is, right? Because what's stressful to me may not be stressful to Jillian and vice versa. So, it, it, and that stems from a whole lot of other stuff, like of where we come from, who we are, you know. But it's, it's super important to try to, to try to help yourself prevent disease. Because there aren't a whole lot of medications right now that are effective to block those purinergic signals. So, yes? Do you find that you often have to work backwards with someone, like in terms of looking at all the things that can be done by that particular individual in their day-to-day -day life to reduce the cell danger response, and then slowly excavating backwards toward what are the root causes. But it strikes me that there, there's probably a multitude of causes that are coming into play to create that, that um, direction. Yeah, that's an understatement. Right? So, yeah. And so, the, I mean, obviously the answer is yes. We start, we start way back when. You know, I mean, I always start sort of, I actually asked about pregnancy and delivery of, of you. How was, your, mom, how was your, your mom's pregnancy with you? How was delivery? What was early years like? Did you meet milestones appropriately? 
you know, I go back as far as that. I know some people, Jillian goes back generations before, you know, because it, the tr it, it is true that the cells do hold trauma. And there's, there's truth to that. There's, there's science to that in the sense that there are molecular changes that occur within your cells that you can pass on to progeny. But certainly stick with, stick with you for your life, right? It can have effects. So in other words, when I say what's stressful to you may not be to someone else, that has everything to do with where you came from and what your generation and what generations before you sort of had to deal with and bring forth to your generation. And then, of course, what you've experienced throughout your life and, and still continue to do so. So that all plays a role. Do you perceive like things like the MTHFR mutation and things are becoming more and more well-known as a trauma response? So when we think about genetics, we think about um, the construction crew and the blueprint. There have been MTHFR mutations for time immemorial, so this is not new. What's new in our environment are many other things, like the environmental pollutants and um, the lack of microbiome that we pick up from our environment because we're not you know, we now refrigerate our food, which is like way a good thing, except for we don't get fermentation <coughs> like we used to, and we don't sleep in the dirt or sleep outside, and we don't spend time outside. And then the, the pollution weakens our system for viruses or for other infective agents, and our connection isn't the same. So, right, there's one statistic that's kind of up down is teen pregnancy is down. And part of the reason teen pregnancy is down is because teens aren't having sex anymore. They're just texting. <laughs> so they're not actually seeing each other. Which, you know, I, not that I'm a big fan of teen pregnancy, but, <laughs> but I, do, I do think that connection is really important, and we don't have that. We have less and less and less and less connection. So there's a multitude of factors that are leading to kind of why we're having more and more and more chronic disease. Um, part of what we try to do here in a visit with an individual, part of what we're trying to do now is kind of talk about this process so that people can kind of evaluate for themselves where does this stick in their life and what can be done. But part of what we do in a visit is listen to the specific story and try to pick individual pieces apart because not only is it different weight in what the cause is of the problem, but it's also a different weight in what impact any one particular intervention will have. So from the Ayurvedic perspective, we all have an individual constitution and poison for one will be medicine for another. And so figuring out not only what is the medicine in this moment in this time, but also, you know, what's accessible to a person. So maybe the ideal treatment is A, but maybe what's possible is B. And so we have to figure out in reality what is going to back what is going to back up these symptoms. And the backing up is an interesting way to think about it because really, the whole idea of the cell danger response is that we're not backing it up along that same track. We're pushing it all the way through so that it can it can close. You know, when you eat food. You don't get, you don't digest and get rid of your food by throwing it up and putting it back in the fridge. It really has to sorry. It really all has to move. Sorry. All the way through. And that when it moves all the way through and digests in the best fashion possible, that is what is healthy. A healthy cell danger response means that we get triggered, we address the trigger appropriately, we resolve the problem, and then our cells find each other again. And we re and we regain the whole. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I guess what I'm what I'm looking for is sort of uh, to put into perspective those things we cannot change. Or do you take the stance that ultimately, as these pieces get addressed, what we might perceive to be unchangeable, you know, in the realm of epigenetics, suddenly we oh, have the ability to to turn on positive gene expression, turn off negative gene expression, if that's sort of a root cause of, of why certain people aren't handling the stressors, 
It's not that anybody should be able to handle what we have to handle, but yeah. Too. But in my understanding, um, and what the in the studies that I, that I've looked at have basically said, if it is a metabolic pattern, that a metabolic pattern can essentially be undone, but a physical pattern cannot necessarily be undone. So, for instance, that migration is those cells aren't going to necessarily unmigrate. So, if this cell danger response is initiated at a time where there's key developmental components happening then that trajectory may be changed forever. And that can happen kind of all along our life, but certainly is most relevant in our early years. The, the new cells learn from the older cells. So if there's decades of pattern, it can be really difficult to undo. Certain is one of those paranergic receptor antagonists that is occurring to. So it blocks the signaling. So once the gene is expressed, it's actually very hard to turn it off. Um, so epigenetics sort of has that role. But the goal, of course, is to either A, stop the expression of certain genes, stop it being turned on, um, or B, block what those expressed genes are now causing. And that could be, that, and, that, and that's much more complicated than I just made it sound, right? Because there are a lot, there's a cascade of events that happens in every physiological mechanism in the body. That nothing is like from, you know, A plus B equals C. It's never that simple. There's lots of different metabolites, there's lots of different pathways. You block one part of the pathway, the other pathways become a lot more robust. So it's very complicated in a sense. So what you do basically is you either, again, try to slow down expression of genes that really shouldn't be expressed, try to slow down the epigenetic change that could potentially happen that, could, that can alter expression of genes, and then C, you block whatever has now been sort of initiated and triggered, you block whatever that signal is. So that's why that, that signaling concept is so important and I think it's one of the easier concepts that most people can grasp. It's all about the signal. <coughs> so you turn on, you know, the epigenetics, all these polymorphisms of the genes, and then you, you ultimately have these signalings that go on that, that result in some physiologic, metabolic, physical change. And you could try to block that. It's not easy, certainly, but there are ways of doing it. Um, and and that's, that is the goal. And so, you know, it's nice if we could all have these kinds of lectures when we're, you know, one years old and prevent all that yeah. genetic changes, right? <laughs> but that doesn't happen, and that's not reality. So we all hold our own different epigenetic changes already. So our goal is to sort of figure out what it's doing to us, how it's helping us sort of modulate our interaction with our environment and taking in the stimuli and then expressing our own response and reaction, and not only emotional and mental, but physical, right? So, and then trying to alter that as best as we can. And, you know, there are some things that we all can do on our own, and that's what, you know, we were talking about, just sort of things, lifestyle choices that can be made that can actually help ameliorate all that. And then there are some things that we just sort of need some help with. So, so yeah, it's, it's unfortunately, you, once genes are expressed, it's, it's hard to sort of turn them off. And, in, and the Ayurvedic word for that is called kavaigunya, which technically translates, unfortunately, as defective space. Um, Kind of sad to think about it that way, but it really is a vulnerability. So it's the idea like if you sprain your ankle, your ankle doesn't stay sprained forever, but if you are running at night on uneven ground in the dark and you're tired, if the right kind of influences are there, it's way easier to sprain that same ankle again. And so that's a kavaigunya. And that kavaigunya can happen from the Ayurvedic perspective in all realms of life. So you can have a kavaigunya in your mind that when someone flips you off, then you lose your mind. Like that's a, you know, you just, you can have weakness for, or vulnerability for emotional things, for dietary things. Maybe you eat gluten and 
things don't go well, that can be a kavaigunya or some kind of dietary program or not having enough sleep. And so once you have these kavaigunya, these weaknesses, and that also includes the genetic polymorphisms or the SNPs, um, mutations in the genetics that maybe don't process particular vitamins, nutrients, cofactors, minerals as well, or any kind of metabolic vulnerability, that can kind of follow you for life. And certainly if it's intergenerationally between the generations, it's from ancestors, or if it's with you for decades, or if it's with you in key developmental periods of your life, then that can also make you vulner more vulnerable than otherwise. But the reason that we have the cell danger response, the reason that we have all this cell talk, is because we really want to find what's called allostasis. So we used to think of it as called homeostasis, and homeostasis means that you want your um, potassium to be between you know 3.8 and 4.8, or whatever, I can't, five. Five, 5.1. So homeostasis means that there's a right realm to be in, or you always want your blood pressure between a certain certain numbers in a certain range. And we used to think of homeostasis as we were all targeting that perfect range, but really what we're targeting is allostasis. So allostasis is a dynamic balance, which means that we actually respond appropriately to the situation. So there's going to be times, even when we're targeting a certain perfect healthy blood pressure, there's going to be times where it can be less, like maybe when we're sleeping, or there's times where it might be more, like if we're um, running to catch a bus, or whatever it is, the idea that we can be flexible with our metabolism, and that all that cellular talk, all those you know, 80,000 people in the stadium can do the wave at the same time to respond to a signal appropriately for the environment. So we're really trying to find, the reason that we have all of this is so that we can find allostasis. And if we develop chronic disease or chronic illness or have traumatic brain injury that we are having trouble recovering from, we wanna figure out how we resume allostasis so that we're again appropriately responding to our environment. That's something that was a panic at one time, um, maybe an elevated blood pressure, that if we quit that one bad job or leave that bad relationship or figure or win the lotto and now we're not worried about our money, you know, the idea that that stressor can actually go away. Does that make sense? So that's why we have it. So this is what we have and why we have it. So a lot of examples not a great idea. You ever see that documentary? I have those actually. Winners that all went broke and or dead or yes, <laughs> because they still hold on to that same yes. stressful response they have that or the stressful relationship they have with money. Yes. That despite the fact that they won millions of dollars, right? They still hold that very unhealthy relationship with money. And so the great majority of them like lost it all or drunk themselves to death or uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was a documentary about it, like, yep. right? So. So it, it is important. I mean, so that's when we talk about how cells hold metabolic memory. It really is true that you have a lifetime of an unhealthy relationship with something that has been stressful for you, that, that it doesn't go away all that easily, right? You have to sort of work at it. Yeah. You have to work at life, basically, is what I would say. Like, <laughs> life just doesn't happen to you. You have to happen to it. So you have to work at life. Uh, it's all our responsibility. It's all our role. Our role is our life, right? That's our job. So you might have a job outside of, you know, your home, but your job is your life. Take care of it, nurture it, protect it, do for it, right? And it'll do back for you. So, yes, in the lottery example, yeah, I thought, I thought about that. Right. <laughs> like part of the science of Ayurveda is really building intelligence and compassion and clarity, mental clarity throughout the lifespan. So there's no point at which that training kind of ends. Right. So in Western, in the Western world, it's like we go to school, we gain our skills, we enter the workforce, and then we just make our widgets. And so that is not what Ayurvedic life is about. Ayurvedic life really is about continuing to garner skill and finesse with our awareness, our perception, our compassion, 
and our mental, intellectual, and physical flexibility for the span of our lives. There's always work to do. <laughs> so it comes down to. <laughs> but in a there are essentially four stages in the cell danger response. The first stage is wakeful activity and restorative sleep. So that is when things are going well, it means that all, this, all these signals are talking to each other, that we are awake and engaged in our activities to the degree that we want to be, and that we have restful sleep during which all of this digestion and defragmenting of the computer happens and that our sleep, the number of hours that we spend in the various stages of sleep is adequate to restore us and then we re-engage with a day of um, engaged healthy activity. Sounds nice, right? Mm -hmm. So when there is new information like a stress, an injury, a toxic exposure, an infectious exposure, heavy metals, pollution, or a, met or a triggered metabolic memory, emotional or physical, like chickenpox is always a good example because no one has feelings about chicken. Then there's a whole cascade of things that happen. Our mitochondria, which are the power plants of our cells, they make our energy. They perceive it first. They're so metabolically active, they really perceive it first. And so they immediately trigger, they send their ATP, they change from a power plant into a battleship. They send their ATP extracellularly, and that's what Eileen was talking about with all of the, they trigger this purinergic signaling. Um, they downregulate their use of oxygen for making energy, and they focus on sending parts out into the metabolism that the body may need for repair. Already the cell kind of regroups onto itself and it becomes, its priority becomes individual survival as opposed to group survival. So they try to try to save themselves. Um, the cellular communication gets severed because the cells aren't listening now to all these big channels. They're trying to just focus on maintaining their own viability. Um, the vagus nerve, which triggers our parasympathetic rest and digest response, that tone gets lower because it's not sending as many signals and the individual cells are trying to handle it on their own. And the goal is really containment, like killing off organisms if this is an infectious agent, sequestering toxins if this is a toxin uh, agent. Um, the innate immune system is activated and it's really trying to kind of do clean. Um, so there's a certain number of diseases that we see if a person essentially gets stuck in a, in a um, uh, stage one uh, cellular danger response. And so septic shock, um, allergies, asthma, eczema, chronic infections like fungal infections, viral infections, parasitic infections, uh, toe fungus one is another example, and then changes in the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, multiple organ dysfunction, things in the, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. So things like chronic stress, like that chronic cortisol. So that's really the first stage. That's why it's important to address the mitochondria, right? Because they are stage one. So if you find dysfunction in the mitochondria, then you know at least the cell danger response has already started, which is why we do a lot of mitochondrial work here. And so the first place to start healing, of course, is the mitochondria because they are the ones that are sort of measuring what's happening and sort of the ones that are basically standing at the front lines deciding what they need to respond to and what they don't need to respond to is to try to protect the body, but also, you know, but then they could start to become overwhelmed with the amount of stimuli, right? So the mitochondria is the first place we start. We try to address them and see how they're functioning, and that's the first place we start to heal as well. So the mitochondria are really, they're, they're good, like they're the canary in the coal mine, as they say, right? So they really tell us what might be going on. So once that threat is contained, that's kind of that first checkpoint, and we can move on to the stage two. So in stage one, if we totally clean it up, then we can kind of pick up back through. So we don't necessarily need to go through all the other stages. 
depending on the severity. So for instance, like a paper, you probably can't see it, it's very tiny. There was some inflammation that happened from that paper cup, but my whole system didn't go into a cell danger response. This was a very contained, but let's say that I had a larger cut and that then it got infected with staph, then my whole body might result in sepsis and that would turn on that full cell danger response. So the cells right at the paper cut were able to um, trigger inflammation and kind of have a conversation and then you can think like, the little shells outward of the other cells were like, okay, you got this. All right, should we be doing anything? Do we need to respond? Do we need to like, how far does this need to go? And at some point they made a decision that was like, oh, it can just stay right here. But if something is larger, then it can reverberate through the whole system. And when we think about it, emotional stuff, experiences of rejection or experiences of being abandoned, you know, especially if we're children, those things, even though those aren't necessarily physical threats, they can reverberate through the whole system. They're not necessarily contained in one place. And so our cells can globally perceive that and globally respond with something like a cell danger response. It's like an order of magnitude. Yes. Because they're sending signals to the surrounding cells and if it's a, the greater the order of magnitude, the further that signal goes. So the more cells respond with that cell danger response. Yes. They still two friends. So <laughs> they told two friends, yes. Right, so, two. so once the kind of things are contained, then we move into the second stage of the cell danger response. So in the second stage, um, the focus is really on the environmental cleanup and the resetting the structures of the environment. So, you know, I thought about, better or worse, like Europe and World War II, right? So lots of bombing happened. It was every person for themselves. And then after the bombing, the first thing they had to do was kind of clean up the environment. And that's what happens in the second stage. So they try to bring more oxygen in, try to get out any toxins or any damaged cells. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on proliferation and rebuilding. So there's a lot of rebuilding that's happening in this stage. And there's still not a lot of far away cellular communication, but the, the closed cells start building their kind of little niches again. Um, there's still not as much uh, vagus tone, which is related to that parasympathetic and that whole system, that whole organism communication. But there's stem cells that can be recruited in and it's really the concentration is on building the individual cells. So those are multiplying and build, rebuilding themselves. Once those initial structures are rebuilt, then you move into that third stage, differentiation and development. And in the third stage, it really is resumption of the cell-to-cell, -cell, durable cell-to-cell -cell relationship and communications and communication with faraway cells. So remember, our system does best if I get a paper cut on my finger, but like even my toe is aware of it. The idea, like my adrenals are aware of it, my lungs are aware of it. If I'm going into sepsis from something on my finger, my whole body, my heart, my lungs, my kidneys, my liver, everything needs to be in the know. But in that second stage of the cell danger response, these cells are just kind of focused on themselves still. In that third stage is when we reestablish these long-range networks. And remember that also as these cells, once these cells are built, they have to learn how to be cells because we make a lot of new cells once we have a trauma, once we have a damage. So lots of new cells are being made and they have to learn from the old cell how to be the cells that they're supposed to be. So if you've got trauma that extends for decades, then you have to know that those new cells um, are learning from the old cells, but the old cells learn from the cells before them, and there have now been so many generations of cells that can't think clearly, that can't respond clearly, that the new trainees are not taught intelligently about how to do their best in a situation. And so there's a lot of confusing cells teaching newly confused cells about how to be. And that's a lot of how chronic disease can persist 
and why it can be so difficult. A lot of patients that I see are like, I'm on the perfect diet, I have a perfect sleep schedule, I have a perfect this, my life, I've cut out all the stress and I still can't get well. And a lot of it is because the metabolic tracks that have been set up are were confused cells learning from confused cells. And so it's really hard to undo that. It's really hard to find the clarity. So a lot of the diseases in that third stage can be things that we see a lot here because it's a lot of neurological conditions. So pain, you know, we have pain. So when I got my first, when I first got my, I'm just going to use this to the end. When I first got my paper cut, it was super painful. But, you know, the analogy is that, like, that pain never goes away. That paper cut, you know, whatever that is in your physiology essentially can heal, but the pain track is still set up. And so if somebody's still ringing your doorbell, even though maybe it's not the doorbell itself, it's, there's no one there anymore. But because that doorbell is still going off, you can't cook your food, you can't use the bathroom, you can't take a shower, you can't rest, because someone's still clicking on your doorbell, and it's really your own physiology being confused. And we don't have ways in Western medicine of undoing that. We don't have ways of resetting the system. We don't have ways of kind of landing the jet engine, taking parts off, putting parts on, and taking back off again. We really have to repair ourselves as a jet engine in flight. And that's what we're doing within the cell danger response. So you're at some level, stage one, stage two, stage three of the cell danger response. And we really have to find ways to unlock that physiology and reorient that cell talk that all those 80,000 people, I'll go with 60,000 because that was for cell, I think how many entries he has now. But, um, you know, all those 60 to 80,000 people in the stadium have to remember that have to relearn that things are okay. And so how do we do that? And we don't really have anything in Western medicine. Um, we just don't. Yeah, phantom limb is the perfect example. There's a metabolic memory, and the cells piggyback on each other. So they trigger each other to say the limb is there, but there's no limb. Or there's an itch, or there's a pain there, and there's nothing you can do. I mean, there, so, and sometimes what they say is just imagine that it's there, and imagine you're doing the thing that you would do if you needed to for the limb that once was there. And sometimes that can help because of the other metabolic memory that your, that your finger has of scratching your leg. If we can just take a second to think about it, what are your metabolic memories? What are, what are the signals that you have sent your body time after time after time? Mentally, emotionally, intellectually, physiologically, sleep-wise, what are the things that, the signals that you have kind of sent yourself? Even maybe, and I want to I note, none of this is in any of our fault. You know, sometimes these are patterns that are handed down to us intergenerationally. Um, sometimes these are things that, that are, as much as I just want to recognize, sometimes these are societal things that are placed upon us about how we're okay or how we're not okay. Um, and it may not have anything to do with us, but it may have been an external reminder about how, you know, my nose is too big or my something is too something. And so that we get lots of messages that get reinforced over time. I think that's a really big important point. I think a lot of who we are really comes from external sources and we look for external validation when because that's what we're trained to do basically, that's how others perceive us. And that does ultimately over time help us develop our sense of ourselves and when it doesn't hold true, it creates a lot of disconnect within us and that's a form of stress as well. And we still continue to try to find external validation. So it, and so it is a societal problem. It's a cultural problem. It's a societal problem. I think it's also a matter of, you know, we come from different cultures and different backgrounds and, and different intergenerational relationships. And so it all plays a role in how our body perceives itself and how our body perceives its health 
and thereby how you perceive your health and thereby how you respond to things that happen in your life. So, I, I mean, so it's, it's really complex, obviously. And I think that every person has their own role in trying to help harness their own healing powers. And it's really, and the first step is to acknowledge all of this, is to sort of see through it. And um, so it's sort of like breaking down the very, even looking at yourself your entire life, just sort of breaking it apart into glass and pieces, and then sort of rebuilding it and so in, in, the, in the way that it, it should be built. And socioeconomic status also holds a lot. Like, are you safe? Are you not safe? Is this, where are you, where is that level for you? Right, it's like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Yeah. So, if, like, if our, if our basic needs are not met, then everything else just falls apart. If our basic needs are met, and then our next level of needs are not met, then everything from there falls apart. So, we all need to feel safe and part of the community and loved and validated and accepted. Um, and that's hard to come by, I think, especially in current day and age. I think it's even harder. So while things don't get better, things are just getting worse, right? And then we actually see a correlate. Even people just seem to be getting sicker. And there's such a, 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 a huge, you know, increase in incidence of chronic disease and chronic illness, and you know, illnesses that you know no one really knows how to define exactly. Um, and so, and, and, and I think it's a consequence of all that we're sort of talking about. It's a consequence of the cell danger response. And it affects, you know, children and adults. Like, there, there's really no age preference to this, really. And it can happen at any point in a lifetime. So I think it's important that we also do this kind of inner work because, as Jillian said, there's no great medicine. There isn't, like, a script I can write that would just sort of fix all of this, right? So it's a, it's a lot of inner work, and it's hard, but, you know, it, it can be done. That's what enlightenment as cure for the self danger. It is. That's exactly right. I think that we really are kind of at a crossroads. I, I completely agree. It's like what really set me up at night about the cell danger response is that this is kind of what's happening in our social relationships. So if you think of us as the cells of the larger organism of the earth, you know, we all live kind of like parasites on the earth. Um, we are in a state of cell danger response. Our country is so divided politically and socially, right? We have our relationships are disrupted. <coughs> we cannot anymore have relationships that are long-term, that are across, uh, across platforms. Um, and so what they talk about is, you know, people I think more and more and more feel like it's kind of like them for themselves because there's no predictability. One way to really heal our way is really to get together, is to form community. So I thought about this a lot, and I've told this story before about when I had my, when I had my son five years ago, and I did a little PEPS class, and PEPS is great. It's a program for early parent support in Seattle, and they hook you up with like a bunch of people, a bunch of folks in your neighborhood who just had a baby, and so we were like 11 moms with like 11 newborns, in 11 houses, making 11 dinners, trying to watch 11 crying babies. And I just thought, oh my God, this would be so much easier if it was, was 11 moms in five houses. You know, if, if one mom was making dinner for two moms or one mom made dinner for 11 and then everyone else just played with babies. There's ways that traditionally we have supported each other that we don't anymore. And we're now, we're on the hook for everything. So this is part one of the cell danger response. Navio actually even calls it a kind of cellular autism where the communication is broken down in order to protect the cell from too much outside input so that it can just listen to what's going on inside itself. So for viability with the goal of being survival.
So if we're going to follow the cell danger response socially in terms of repairing our country, repairing our city, repairing our state, repairing our culture and society, then really what we see is that we're, we're panicked, we're about ourselves, we're down-regulating our energy use, we're trying to conserve, and our next step is to really kind of contain the damage within us to the best that we can and then start rebuilding, replenishing. So Ayurveda talk calls this, that's the reciting piece. Building our ojas, we kind of like our juicy loveness, that's ojas in Ayurveda. Um, and then starting to have more communication slowly with first our surrounding relationships, our close relationships, getting those relationships straightened out and then having it bridge further and further and further so that we become a powerhouse. And I really do believe we are at a crossroads that there will be some who can do this and there will be some of us who cannot. And it's part of the reason that we're talking about it so that we can give as much support to each other as we can. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be too doom and gloom, but um, <laughs> we're having trouble. I don't know if anybody noticed. <laughs> One of the downsides of sort of this global age that we're in, this internet age, is that we're sort of bombarded with information from everywhere, about everyone, about every place, mm -hmm. and there are pictures of everything, and, every, and we, we feel like we want to go visit everywhere, we want to know everyone, we want to read everything, and it really <laughs> is too much for any single organism us and, and, and I think that there's something to be said for you know way back when before there was all this technology people really knew where they lived they knew all about the flora and the fauna and the stars and their sky and they knew all about the history of their area and the history of the buildings even that built and the people that lived there before them they understood all of that at, at, at a core they understood the food that was grown there you know and how people were nourished and how people harvested. They understood all those details, but now we sort of ignore what's around us and we want to be somewhere else. We want to travel lots of different places and see lots of different and learn about those different cultures, but we never take the time to really learn about our own surroundings. And so you can definitely apply that obviously to us as beings in terms of who we are, and we don't really take the time to understand ourselves either. And so I think that that's sort of one of the consequences of the way we all live now. And we don't really sort of look in and not only to ourselves, but in our own home, in our own city, in our own neighborhoods. And I think that's important, and it, I think it is part of healing. And so I think you said that actually so perfectly, and it does speak to, I think, what we're all like, just sort of not seeing, because we're just bombarded with, I mean, every time I turn on my computer, it's like 20 different news stories going on, and I go onto Facebook, and there's like a million different posts about, a, you know, tr a trillion different topics, and different people. And so I think, it's, I think it's just too much. I think it really is just too much. And I always say that, you know, take like computer breaks and internet breaks, but I think that's impossible for most people, certainly hard for myself. But, you know, but it is, it's, it's important. We have to sort of go back to homegrown for a little while. If we're really going to tackle the cell danger response, we have to find where our heart sits and, and nourish ourselves. Because uh, otherwise we'll never heal. Uh, otherwise we're too scattered. We're, we're thinking like we need to be somebody else, we need to be somewhere else, we need to, we need to be doing something different. But we have to be homegrown first, right? It's what they say, love yourself and everyone else will love you. It's mm -hmm. so true, right? Mm -hmm. So true. Thank you for listening today with Dr. Eileen Ruhoy, Deirdre Gately, and myself, Jillian Ehrlich. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also get more information from and about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com, or even better yet, come see us in person in our Seattle-based clinic. Please be sure you share this show with your friends and we welcome your rating, review, and subscription wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. 
And we love that you've joined us today to discuss the cell danger response and how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.